right. welcome everybody. We're so thankful to have Dana. I've enjoyed these teachings. It's been a great review for me. I've actually preached through Genesis and Exodus. That was a long time ago. I'm glad to, to go back through this. And he has some great insights. So let's begin with prayer. Thank you, dear Lord, for taking care of us and bringing us together and for giving us a love for the truth by your grace. May we learn from our teacher, Dana, be with him and help us learn and grow as we open the scriptures in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. It's been said that there are always three sermons, or in this case, three Bible studies that you give. There's the one you prepare, the one that you actually deliver, and the one that you give to yourself on the way home. <laughs> and of the three, the one you give to yourself on the way home is always by far the best. Because in that one, you think of all the things that you were going to say but didn't, and you think of all the things that you did say but wish you hadn't. <laughs> That's me too. <laughs> so I'll give you one of each. I, when I talked last time about um, Judah and his daughter-in-law Tamar, I mentioned the the concept of payback, of reaping what you sow. That if you're deceived, you will in turn be deceived. And of course, the prime example of that is uh, Jacob when he deceived his father Isaac, and then he was deceived in turn by Laban. But an interesting little twist, a little insight about that is when Jacob deceived Isaac, Isaac was expecting the firstborn, but he got the secondborn. When Laban deceived Jacob, Jacob was expecting the secondborn, but he got the first. <laughs> so Merthel, yeah. And then the other thing, um, I said that uh, the location Dan was previously known as Laish, but that's not correct. It's Lashem, Lashem, not Laish. So I'll, I'll talk a little bit more about that, incidentally, tonight. But tonight we're going to be looking at Exodus, where we see Jesus Christ, our Passover lamb. The exodus from Egypt is an, ext an extremely significant event in Israel's history and in salvation history. If this miraculous event would not have occurred, we wouldn't have a savior. So it is a very significant event. The word exodus, the name exodus, means a going out. It comes to us from the from the Greek of the Septuagint via Latin, as many of our English words do, it simply means a going out. The, the Jewish people named the five books of Moses according to the first word or words that occur in the book. So they refer to Genesis as Bereshit, in the beginning. And they refer to Exodus as names. Shem is the, is the Hebrew word for name. Shemot is the, the plural, names. And the reason they call it that is because it, the book begins, it opens with these words. Now these are the names of the children of Israel who came to Egypt. So that's why they call it the book of names, the book 
the book of Shemot. The time that Israel spent in Egypt is sort of an inclusio because it begins with a shepherd who becomes a prince of Egypt, Joseph. And it ends with the prince of Egypt who becomes a shepherd, Moses. It's been said that Moses' life can be divided into three 40-year periods. He lived 120 years altogether. So he spent the first 40 years of his life thinking that he was really somebody. He spent the next 40 years of his life finding out that he was a nobody. And he spent the last 40 years of his life finding out what God can do with a nobody. There are some themes that I would like you to notice when you read the book of Exodus. Themes that run through the book. The theme of name and know and serve. Know as in K-N-O-W, no. Name, know, and serve. When God appears to Moses in the burning bush, he makes a really big deal about his name. And when Moses goes to Pharaoh and tells him about Yahweh, Pharaoh says, who's Yahweh? Never heard of him. And all of the plagues that God sends on Egypt, he says, are so that they may know that I am God. And the other, the other theme is serve. The Israelites had spent all of this time serving Egypt, and now God wanted, him, wanted them to serve him. So those three themes, name, know, and serve. If we look at the book of Exodus in terms of our acronym flight, uh, the author is Moses, of course. Uh, Jesus himself said so. He referred to events that occurred in the book of Exodus and, and attributed them to Moses. Uh, it occurred sometime during the 40 years of wandering when this was written down, sometime after Israel came out of Egypt. And it had to be completed, of course, sometime before the end because uh, Moses was not able to go into the promised land. The landmarks are redemption and identification. God not only wanted to bring Israel out of Egypt, he also wanted to bring Egypt out of Israel. He didn't just want to free them, bring them out, deliver them. He wanted them to identify with him. So the, the uh, itinerary that we have is domination, liberation, revelation, and identification. So first, Israel is dominated by Egypt, then they are freed from Egypt, and then God reveals himself to them, and finally, they find their identification in him. Gospel, well, of course, the two really big things in the book of Exodus are the Passover 
and the tabernacle, and both, both of those things tell us about the gospel, tell us about the, the person and work of Jesus Christ. And as I did with, with Genesis, I will talk more about the gospel in Exodus when we, after we go through the book. Uh, the history, well, it took place during that 40-year period in the wilderness. It, it was at the start of the 40-year period, the beginning of it. It took place, it was written down, it took place sometime in the 1400s B.C., and when I say that, I'm tipping my hand as to whether I believe in an early date or a late date for the Exodus, but I'll talk more about that later. The uh, travel tips, we need to recognize our need for deliverance. We need to recognize that Jesus is a deliverer, and we need to resolve to spend more time with the God who loves us and saved us. Now, there are several big issues that we encounter in the book of Exodus. So the first issue we encounter is the length of, of the oppression. How long was Israel in Egypt? Many people read this verse, these, these two verses in Exodus chapter 12, now the sojourning of the children of Israel who dwelled in Egypt was 430 years. At the end of 430 years, on that very day, all the companies of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. Most people read that, those two verses and they say, well, see, right there it says, Israel was in Egypt for 430 years. But this passage tells us only what happens at the end of the 430 years. That's when Israel came out of Egypt and received the law. But it doesn't really tell us what event marks the beginning of the 430 years. I, I always point to this as a classic example of how you can't just read one verse or one passage of scripture and say, there, now I know everything that the Bible has to say about that subject. Well, unless you consider all of the relevant scriptures, all of the scriptures which have a bearing on this issue, you haven't really learned all that the Bible has to say about this subject. I always uh, point to this in, in Isaiah. For precept must be upon precept, line upon line, here a little and there a little. You have to consider all of the scriptures about a subject before you draw any conclusions. Because when it comes to the 430 years, you have to consider this passage from Galatians. The promises were spoken to Abraham and to his offspring. The law, introduced 430 years later, does not set aside the covenant previously, previously established by God and thus do away with the promise. So, the passage in Galatians tells us that from the time the promises were given to Abraham until the time of the exodus and the giving of the law, it's 430 years. So if that is the case, how are you going to fit another 430 years of oppression within that longer period of time? It doesn't work. 
So when you put all of the, the relevant scriptures together, you get this. It's 430 years from the time the promises are first given to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12 until the time of the Exodus and the giving of the law, the time of, of Israel coming out of Egypt and receiving the law. So you can see how it's further broken down into this, these 30 years from the time that the promises are first given to Abraham until the time Isaac is born. And then when Isaac is 60 years old, Jacob is born. And then Jacob is 130 years old when he, he and his family go down into Egypt. So by, by process of elimination and process of subtraction, that leaves only 210 years for Israel to be in Egypt. Not 430 years, but 210. Now, people that I admire and respect don't agree with me on this, and that's fine. I, I still love them dearly. They are my Christian brothers. I have no um, hostility towards them. We get along just fine. But, but I, this, is, this is what I think, based on the, the scripture that we see in Galatians about the length of the oppression. The uh, Septuagint actually says, now the sojourning of the children of Israel who dwelt in Canaan and Egypt was 430 years. So it's, it's specifically saying that it's not just the, the time that they were in Egypt, but it's the whole span of time from the time that the promises were given to Abraham. And just to, to, just to show you how much of a, of a difference this makes. Uh, these two men, David Down and Charles Ailing, they come out pretty close about when they think the Exodus happened. One says 1445, one says 1446. So they're pretty close. But if you go backward in time, you'll see that when they think Abraham was born is very different. 1950 B.C. versus 2166 B.C. Why is there such a big difference? Well, because David, uh, Charles Ailing thinks that the, the, the oppression was 430 years. David Down thinks it was only half that time. So that, that makes quite a difference as far as you're, if, you're, if you have the exodus lined up and you want to go back, well, then you'll get quite a difference based on whether you think the oppression was 430 years or whether it was approximately half that time. Now, the next issue that we're going to take up is the, the date of the Exodus. And here's Charles Ailing right here. He's a history professor over at uh, Northwestern. He, he said this about the, the date of the Exodus. He said, there is perhaps no single problem in Hebrew history which has been contested as long or as hotly as the question of the date of the Exodus. So it is, it is a very contested question. With, with regard to the date of the Exodus, there are those who hold to an early date, and there are those who hold to a late date. What do we mean by early date, late date? Well, early, the early date is sometime in the 15th century BC. The late date is in the 13th century BC, the 1200s BC. So we have these two 
ideas about when the Exodus occurred in the 1400s and the 1200s BC. Those who hold to a late date think that this guy, Ramesses II, was the pharaoh of the Exodus. It gives you his, um, approximately his dates of, of birth and death there, and also his uh, dates of reigning over, over Egypt. So you can see that most of his reign is in the 1200s BC. He's often regarded as, regarded as the greatest, most celebrated, and most powerful pharaoh of the Egyptian empire. His reign of 67 years was the second longest of the Egyptian pharaohs. And this idea of a late date for the Exodus and that Ramesses was the pharaoh of the Exodus was perpetuated in the movie The Ten Commandments with Charlton Heston and Yul Brynner. It's based on this idea that, that uh, Ramesses was the pharaoh of the Exodus. And the main reason that scholars who favor a late date favor a late date is because of this scripture. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to oppress them with forced labor. They built supply cities, Python and Ramses for Pharaoh. So the reasoning goes like this. Well, if there's a place, a city named Ramses, it must have been during the reign of Ramses. He must have been the Pharaoh of Egypt. For me, that's not a very compelling argument. Um, one possibility is that there was a place called Ramses long before there was a pharaoh called Ramses. That's one possibility. Just like uh, there was a, a county in England called Lincoln long before there was an Abraham Lincoln. So that's one possibility. Uh, there's another possibility too. Th this is the illustration that I use. This is a picture of Willow River, Wisconsin. Now you say, Willow River, Wisconsin, where is that? I never heard of it. Well, actually, many of you have probably been to Willow River, Wisconsin many times, but you didn't know it as Willow River, Wisconsin. You knew it as Hudson, Wisconsin. Willow River was the original name of Hudson, Wisconsin. It was given the name Hudson later on. I think it's quite possible that the same thing is happening here. This is a, a computer-generated uh, picture of, of what the city may have looked like where the Israelites dwelt. In Moses' day, it was called Avaris. But later on, in Ezra's day, it was called Ramses. So I, I mentioned last time about this thing of divine editing, that sometimes God would use an inspired man to go back and update some of the place names in earlier books so that the people of his day would know what, what the scriptures were talking about. I mentioned this last time in reference to Dan. When Abraham heard that his nephew had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men and went in pursuit as far as Dan. Well, that's, that's way up north. 
But the thing is, Dan was named after Dan, one of the 12 tribes of Israel. But at this time, when this happened, Dan hadn't even been born yet. And when Moses wrote this down, Israel had not yet come into the promised land. So Dan was previously known, I, I mentioned this earlier, as Lashem. So when the, this explains in, in the book of Joshua how the Danites changed, uh, they, they occupied this place and changed its name from Lashem to Dan. So I, I think it's very likely that the same thing is happening here with Avaris being changed into Ramses. And this, this scripture really clinches it for me because it's talking about the time of Joseph in Genesis. Clear back then, the city is called Ramses. Well, surely you don't think that Ramses was ruling all the way from the time of Joseph to the time of Moses. He couldn't have lived that long. He didn't rule that long. So I think that a divine editor is being used to change those names, to update those place names, both in the time of Joseph and in the time of Moses. This is the main reason that I believe in an early date for the Exodus. This is talking about the time when Solomon built the temple in the fourth year of his reign. In the 480th year after the Israelites came out of the land of Egypt, in the fourth year of Solomon's reign over Israel, in the month of Ziv, which is the second month, he began to build the house of the Lord. So if you believe in a late date for the Exodus, there's just no way to fit in these 480 years. That's why I believe that in an early date for the Exodus. So we see the Exodus 12 and 1 Kings 6 telling us about the 480 years. Most scholars agree about the time of Solomon, and they agree that this fourth year of Solomon, when he began construction of the temple, was about 966 B.C. So 480 years earlier than that is 1446 B.C. So that's why I go with the early date. I just don't see how you can reconcile the 480 years if you believe in a late date. Now some people will say, well, that 480 years isn't really 480 years. It really means 12 generations. And an ideal generation is 40 years. So that's 480 years, hypothetically, ideally. But generations really aren't 40 years, and so it was much less than that. Um, I just don't buy that. I think that when the Bible says 480 years, it really does mean 480 years. So that is the first of several big problems that we encounter in the book of Exodus. Now let's go on to something that isn't such a big problem. Moses at the burning bush. Then Mo this is what happened when 
when Moses was at the burning bush, he said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? There's that name theme again. What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the children, to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Wouldn't that be Exodus there? Oh, yeah, uh, it, it would be Exodus. Yeah, it's Exodus 3. It, it definitely is 3. I just, it's just the wrong book. Sorry. Same here. This is really Exodus 3.15. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel. The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. And thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. And of course, we see the significance of that name, I am, in the New Testament, especially in the book of John, the famous I am statements of Jesus. I guess altogether there are 23 I am statements, but these are the, these are the main ones. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door of the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the true vine. Um, just as an aside here, for my, when I'm talking to my Catholic friends and they tell me that, well, we have to believe that the, the bread and the wine actually become the body and blood of Jesus. Because he, he said he said that he's he is these things you know that they but anyway what I always say to them in response is well Jesus also said I am the door of the sheep so does Jesus have a knob and hinges I mean you have to <laughs> you have to realize uh, when people are using figures of speech. Now, the ten, the ten plagues, when, when Moses w- went back to Egypt and confronted Pharaoh, of course, Pharaoh would not relent and let the people go. So God brought plagues upon Egypt. And I thought about uh, bringing you some pictures of what is called the Ipur papyrus. This is a papyrus that some people think is actually the Egyptians reporting on these plagues from their point of view. So now, of course, the secular scholars poo-poo it and say, no, that's not what it is. But it's pretty convincing if you actually look at the Apuwer papyrus and compare it with the plagues. So in the first plague, Water was changed to blood. In the second plague, uh, swarms of frogs. The third plague, gnats or lice. The fourth plague, swarms of flies. The fifth plague, pestilence upon cattle. The sixth plague, boils on humans and animals. The seventh plague, hail, thunder, and lightning. The eighth plague, swarm of locusts. 
the, the, the ninth plague, three days of darkness. And finally, the tenth plague, of course, the death of the firstborn, both people and animals. One of the things about these plagues is that God had promised that he would destroy the gods of Egypt. And for each one of these plagues, there was a, a corresponding god of Egypt that was that, that, that the plague involved. So, for example, um, swarms of frogs. Well, there was a, a god, a goddess, actually, who was supposedly a, a woman from the waist down, but a frog from the waist up. It was a, a goddess of fertility. And, and because of that, you weren't supposed to kill frogs in Egypt. So there, there was this problem of frogs, frogs everywhere. And, and finally, when, when, when God said, or when, when Pharaoh said, I've had enough, you know, take these frogs away. So God caused all the frogs to die. And so you can imagine the smell as we had uh, the stench of decaying frogs everywhere. The next problem that we run into, the next difficulty that we run into with the book of Exodus has to do with the route of the Exodus. You saw earlier what Charles Ayling said about the, the date of the Exodus. Now, this man, Yochanan Aharoni, who studies these things, has said, today the problem of identifying the route of the Exodus in Mount Sinai itself is one of extraordinary difficulty, far more than any other problem of Palestinian biblical topography. So there you have it. We have a really naughty problem as far as the date of the Exodus, and we also have a problem as far as the route of the Exodus, the location of the Red Sea crossing and the location of Mount Sinai. There have been several different proposals as to where the Red Sea crossing occurred. Some believe it occurred in this marshy area north of the Gulf of Suez. Other people believe that it occurred in the Gulf of Suez, and that's been the place that most people have put it for a long time. But more recently, there have come some ideas about the Red Sea crossing occurring in the eastern arm of the Red Sea, the Gulf of Aqaba. And there are a couple of those, Nueva and the Straits of, Straits of Tehran. So I'll show you where some of those things are. So as the Red Sea comes up north, it comes, the, the two tongues of the Red Sea, they call them, uh, around the, the Sinai Peninsula. The Sinai Peninsula is kind of triangle-shaped. So... So some people believe that the crossing occurred over here in the western tongue of the Red Sea, the Gulf of Suez, and more recently people think that it occurred over here in the, in the eastern arm of the Red Sea, eastern tongue of the Red Sea, the Gulf of Aqaba. 
for, for quite a while now, it's been popular to believe that the Red Sea crossing actually occurred up north here, somewhere in this, this marshy area. There's some, some lakes there. there. There were more lakes there before the Suez Canal was built. Um, we'll talk more about these later, but you can see that this, this is where Nueva is located, about halfway down in the Gulf of Aqaba. The streets of the, the Straits of Tehran are clear down here at the south end of the Sinai Peninsula. It is thought that the Gulf of Suez came up further north than it does today. I mean, today, it, the Gulf of Suez ends about in here somewhere. But it was believed that, th that the Red Sea came up much further. There's also a, a big debate about the meaning of Yam Suf, the Hebrew words for Red Sea. In, in Hebrew, like in many languages, you have the noun first and then the adjective, so it's actually sea red. But, um, but some people believe it shouldn't be Red Sea, it should be Reed Sea. And they say that reeds only grow in fresh water, they don't grow in salt water, so it couldn't be in, the, in the, what is, today is called the Red Sea. It was actually the Reed Sea. But other people point out that um, Suf, the word that's translated red or reed, um, it's, it talks about, um, about uh, Solomon had a fleet of ships, and it says that they were in the Reed Sea, or excuse me, the, the Red Sea, you know, Yam Suf. And so some people say that, that um, Suf doesn't actually have to refer to reeds that could refer to some, any kind of vegetation, so it might be seaweed. So there's that argument. But anyway, so if, if the Gulf of Suez in ancient times extended much further north, some people le believe that the, the Red Sea crossing occurred way up here. So there's the remnants of those lakes are in existence today, like Kimsa and, and uh, the Bitter Lakes, as they are called. There's much less water there, and they don't, the water doesn't connect all the way to the Gulf of Suez today because the Suez Canal has been built through that area. So these people believe that the, the Red Sea crossing occurred up here. And so we see, you see here a, a cross section, a profile, that the, the, Gulf, the um, Red Sea was much higher then, so the, the Gulf of Suez extended much further north than it does today. So on, on the right, these, these lakes, like Kimsa and the Bitter Lakes, are cut off from the Red Sea. And, and these, the verticals are a little bit exaggerated here, just for a fact, but the people who believe that this is where the Red Sea crossing occurred, they believe that it occurred right here. But one of the problems with this idea that the Red, that the Red Sea crossing occurred up in this area is 
it seems like the Bible gives us some very definite geographical uh, pointers. It tells us that there were mountains on the right side and mountains on the left and the sea before them and Pharaoh's army behind them. And so people who are not too sure about this idea would say, well, where's the mountains? <laughs> so there, there are problems with that idea. Now, in more recent times, some people have thought that the Red Sea crossing did not occur in the western tongue of the Red Sea, the, the Gulf of Suez, that it occurred in the eastern tongue of the Red Sea, the Gulf of Aqaba. And Nueva is a place where it is, some believe that the crossing occurred. And this also affects, of course, your idea of where Mount Sinai is located. We'll talk about that a little bit later. But they, the people who, who believe that the crossing occurred at Nueva will say that, that Mount Sinai was over here in Saudi Arabia. And they identified the mountain as Jebel al-Laz, the mountain that they think was Mount Sinai. At um, Nueva, there's, a, there's an extensive beach. So you can see there is a, a narrow passageway here through mountains on either side that comes out to this beach. And so they think that that's where the crossing occurred. And they even claim, the people who propose this idea, they even claim that there's a land bridge from the Egyptian side over to Saudi Arabia. It's quite deep on either side of this, and they, but they say there's a land bridge across here where the Israelites would have crossed. And they even claim that they've seen chariot wheels crusted with coral on the seafloor there. And there's an artist's depiction of what, what you're looking at there. Now, there are some problems with this idea that, that, that that's where the Red Sea crossing is. One of the problems is that you see that it's, uh, it's 200 miles across here before you can turn south and then go to Nueva. And so the problem is that the Israelites, men, women, children, livestock, would have, would have to be moving along in a pretty good clip to get to the Red Sea in, in the time allotted. And also, there's the problem of, especially in the book of Numbers, the Bible gives very detailed information about all of the camps, all the places where the children of Israel camped. But there aren't very many camps mentioned between the time they left Egypt and the time they crossed the Red Sea. So there's that, that difficulty too of, of why, why, doesn't, why doesn't it mention more camps, places where they camped on the way to the Red Sea. Now, regarding this uh, undersea land bridge, a man named Jonathan Gray, he claimed that the undersea bridge, which is claimed to exist under the Gulf of Aqaba, appears on British Admiralty charts. 
That's what Jonathan Gray said in support of the idea. But the British Admiralty says, by international agreement, the UK Hydrographic Office is the authority for charting the Red Sea. There is no evidence in the Hydrographic Office of a bridge crossing the Gulf of Aqaba. Contrary to Mr. Gray's statement, the sand bridge is not now and never has been a recognizable feature on British Admiralty charts. And they would point out that if you look at a cross-section there, the, if the Israelites were crossing there, they would have had to, to go down into a very steep canyon and then back up if they were going to cross there. And this is the, uh, the Empire State Building, uh, just for uh, comparison. So it is quite deep there, and they would have to climb down into a canyon and back out. So you can see there's a lot of claims and counterclaims about where the Red Sea crossing occurred. And it seems that we need a lot more uh, study and research before we can really nail these things down. But it's exciting. So I, I've showed you where the crossing at Nueva is. Now, Bob Carnuk thinks also thinks that they crossed the Gulf of Aqaba, and he agrees about where Mount Sinai is. But he thinks the crossing occurred down here, the Straits of Tehran. So that's that's clear down at the at the near the southern tip of the Sinai Peninsula. So, like I say, there's lots of different ideas about where the crossing occurred. And if you just listen to, to the proponents of one idea, you might think they really have something. But you need to listen to all sides, and you'll find that each proposal has some good ideas and some bad ideas. So we, we, do, we do need more study, more research about this. So the other disputed item is the location of Mount Sinai. So for a long time, people have believed that either Mount Catherine or Jebel Musa in the, in the Sinai Peninsula, down near the southern tip of the Sinai Peninsula, it was Mount Sinai. And this has been going for a long time, for centuries, because Constantine's mother, Helena, traveled to, to the Middle East and tried to identify some of these sites. So this has been claimed to be Mount Sinai for some time. And tourists who go to this area to see Mount Sinai, they are told that it is Mount Sinai. Other people claim that it's Jebel el-Laws in Saudi Arabia. Those who believe in the Nueva or Straits of Tehran crossing. But they're not the only two. Now, if you're aware of this controversy between these two, you might think it's either one or the other, but there are many more. <laughs> um, I don't know if you can see it on this map, but on this map, every, every little red triangle is a site that somebody has proposed as Mount Sinai. So I'm seeing 
I see at least seven different sites that are alleged to be Mount Sinai. So that also is, a, is controversial. And of course, where you believe Mount Sinai is, is greatly affected by where you believe the Red Sea crossing occurred. So the, the, the traditional site for Mount Sinai has been down here. Uh, where's my pot? Down here towards the, the southern tip of the Sinai Peninsula. And there's a, a photo of Mount Catherine, which has been the prime suspect for being Mount Sinai for many centuries. There's a, a monastery at the, at the foot of the mountain called the St. Catherine Monastery. And tourists who go to this place to climb Mount Sinai are guests at the monastery. Now, for those who believe that Israel traveled across, Mount si across the Sinai Peninsula and then down and crossed at Nueva, they believe that Jebel al-Waz is Mount Sinai. And they have all kinds of things that they say in support of their idea. This is Jebel al-Waz. And they say, well, see the the peak, the top of this mountain is blackened, like as if burnt. So that's proof to them that this is Mount Sinai. And also nearby, there is a huge rock with a crack in it. And this is where they believe that the, the, Moses struck the rock and water came out. Now, this is a, an artist's illustration, but it shows you see the person down here, so it, it shows you how, how big this rock is, and this is the artist's idea of the, of the water pouring out of the rock. And so to them, that is convincing as this being the place of Mount Sinai. Uh, not too long ago, the, the folks over at uh, Associates for Biblical Research they got another candidate that they think was Mount Sinai. It's about right here. It's called Jebel Qasem et Tarif. There's a picture of that mountain, the mountain that they believe is Mount Sinai. See, Mount, Mount Sinai doesn't just occur in the context of, of uh, the Exodus. It occurs several other times in the Old Testament. And sometimes it's called Mount Sinai, sometimes it's called Mount Horeb, sometimes it's called the Mountain of God, sometimes it's called Mount Paran. And so the Bible provides us with lots of information about where this mountain is located in relation to other things. It must be toward the eastern end of the Trans-Sinai Highway and along the Mount Seir Road. Uh, Mount Sinai should be found in the wilderness of Paran, a 60-day journey from Ramses an 11-day journey from Kadesh Barnea. Jebel Kashem at Tarif is the only site thus far proposed, that's what they say at ABR, for Mount Sinai that meets all these requirements. So they're convinced that that is Mount Sinai. So now let's discuss something that's not so controversial. 
the covenant that God made with Israel follows the pattern, follows the structure of ancient covenants, ancient contracts in the ancient world. It's organized, it's structured in that way. So this is another indication that this wasn't just made up centuries later, that this really was a product of, the, of those times. So these are the different elements of a contract in the ancient world. And every one of these elements, uh, uh, component, components of a covenant, as I say, is found in the covenant that God made with Israel. Over to the right, I've, I've given you the verses where each of these things occurs. And I think I put those on your handout, didn't I? Yeah, mm-hmm. I do have those, those references for you. So the preamble of the contract identifies the parties that are involved. So in, in the, at the beginning of, the, of God's covenant, he, then God spoke all these words, I am the Lord your God. So he identifies who is involved. He and Israel are involved. And then we have the historical prologue who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. So he, he gives some history of where, where this all started. Then we have the stipulations, and that's where we have the Ten Commandments. You shall have no other gods before me, and, and the other laws that follow. Those are the stipulations of the covenant, of the agreement. And then we have the deposition of the text. Okay, we have this agreement. Where is the text going to go? You shall put into the ark the covenant that I shall give you. So that this agreement between God and Israel is going to be deposited in the ark. And then there is to be a public reading. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do and we will be obedient. So this covenant was read before all Israel. And then witnesses are summoned. He, Moses, rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and set up 12 pillars corresponding to the 12 tribes of Israel. So they set up pillars. They set up stone monuments as witnesses to what had happened. And then finally, there are the blessings and cursings. So in the ancient world, when a covenant was made between say, a king and his subjects, there were blessings and cursings. If you abide by this covenant, these are going to be the blessings. If you break this covenant, these are going to be the curses. And of course, those are very well detailed in regard to the covenant that Israel made with God. The blessings for obedience, the curses for disobedience. These are the Ten Commandments that that uh, God gave to Israel. Notice that uh, number six actually says that you shall not murder, not you shall not kill. There's, it doesn't forbid killing of any kind. It forbids murder. It doesn't forbid killing under any and all circumstances. Uh, the interesting thing to me about about these Ten Commandments is 
you would think, well, Ten Commandments, there's ten of them, right? Well, it's interesting how different groups of people don't number them all the same. <laughs> so this is the numbering that, that we are used to. Um, for, for Catholics and Lutherans, what we consider number four about the Sabbath, they consider number three. So they, they sort of combine one and two together and, and divide up ten into coveting, you know, coveting your neighbor's wife and then coveting the things. So they do it differently. They divide up the Ten Commandments differently. And you might say, well, well what do the Jewish people do? <laughs> they do something entirely different. <laughs> um, the Jewish people don't call them the Ten Commandments. They call them the Ten Words. A word meaning not just one word, but ten sayings, ten statements. And so for the Jewish people, the first of the ten words is, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. It doesn't tell you to do anything or not do anything. It's just a statement. So that's number one for them. So. So the, the Jews, the Catholics, and Lutherans, and the Protestants all number them differently, which is kind of interesting. Just as I did with, with Genesis, I like to talk about how we see Jesus in the Exodus. Yahweh the Lord says, I am. And of course, Jesus says, I am in the Gospel of John. <coughs> Moses was a mediator between God and Israel. Jesus is the one mediator in the New Testament. Moses was a prophet. And of course, Jesus was the prophet. Moses himself told us to look for another prophet like him. Israel is described as God's firstborn son. He was called out of Egypt. And we see the fulfillment when Christ was called out of Egypt, and Matthew makes a note of that in his gospel, that God's son was called out of Egypt because his parents took him down to Egypt shortly after he was born, until Herod the Great died. And of course, the really big picture, extended picture of Christ is the Passover lamb, which brought protection from the plague the plague of the death of the firstborn. And the New Testament in 1 Corinthians 5 says explicitly, Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed, sacrificed for us. He brings about the purification from sin. The other thing that takes up a lot of space in the book of Exodus is the construction of the tabernacle. It's interesting how God says that your thoughts are not my thoughts and your ways are not my ways. Sometimes the things that we wish God had spent more time, more space in the Bible, aren't the things that he spends space with. And the things that we don't think he needed to spend as much space on, those are the things he does. So his priorities are different than ours. Uh, for example, more space is spent describing 
the construction of the tabernacle than is spent describing the creation of the universe. When, when we're reading through the, the creation account, we, there's all kinds of things we like to know, like what, what was happening when God created light and dark and he didn't create the sun, moon, and stars until the fourth day. And, you know, <laughs> and um, what were the original kinds like? How many kinds were there? What was the original dog kind like? that eventually led to all of the dogs and wolves and jackals and coyotes and so on. What was the original cat kind like that led to lions and tigers and pumas and <laughs> jaguars and leopards and tabby cats? And what was that kind like? And, and what did Adam and Eve look like? Well, the Bible doesn't tell us any of those things. Instead, the Bible tells us a lot about the tabernacle. So let's, let's take a look at the tabernacle. The tabernacle was divided into an outer court, a holy place in the temple itself, and then the holy of holies. There's a picture of a reconstruction of the tabernacle and the court around it. I mentioned when I talked about Noah's Ark, about a cubit. How long is a cubit? Well, it depends. But if you uh, if you pick a cubit of 18 inches, a foot and a half, then the court of the tabernacle is 100 cubits long and 50 cubits wide. So then it would be 150 feet long and 75 feet wide. Now, in the temple itself, there is the Holy of Holies when you first enter the temple, and then there is the, excuse me, the, the Holy Place when you first enter the temple, and then the Holy of Holies. So it's half the size of the, of the Holy Place, the Holy of Holies is. And there's, this is looking at inside the tabernacle from above. To the right there, you see the altar and the lever. This is the, more of a side cutaway view. And then we can take a look at the, the furnishings of the tabernacle. The bronze altar, the bronze lever, the golden menorah, the table of showbread, the altar of incense, the veil, the Ark of the Covenant. And all of these things tell us about Jesus Christ and about his work. First, the bronze altar. The bronze altar was provided for sacrifice. Without sacrifice, there could be no atonement for sin. For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. In Hebrews, we are told, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And we are also told that it is impossible for the blood of goats, bulls and goats, to take away sins. So we know what those sacrifices were a foreshadowing of, and we know whose blood does take away sin. Next is the bronze labor. No dimensions are given for this object, and it doesn't really give us a, a description of what it was like. So we're 
we're speculating, but it is thought that there were two levels, an upper level and a lower level. The upper level for washing the hands, for the priest to wash his hands in, the lower level for the priest to wash his feet in. Incidentally, the priests who served at the tabernacle and at the temple were barefoot. If you read carefully the descriptions of the priestly garments, you won't see anything about footwear. They were barefoot, just like when Moses was at the burning bush. God said to him, remove your shoes from off your feet. This is holy ground. So the labor was for the cleansing of the priests. For I am the Lord your God, consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy, for I am holy. God said to the Israelites, and especially to the priests, but we know that the only way that we can be holy is to receive Jesus Christ as our sacrifice. That's the only way that we can be declared holy. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. So that's the bronze lever, what it symbolizes, what it pictures. Next is the golden menorah. And this is an easy one. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. But of course, not everyone is willing to accept that light. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. In the eternal state, we learn that the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. Next, the table of showbread. Showbread is kind of an archaic term. Uh, a more modern term is the bread of the presence. And of course, we know that Bethlehem, where Jesus was born, is Bethlehem, the house of bread. And then Jesus explained to people after he had fed them with physical bread. He said, it wasn't Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives to the life to the world. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give, give for the life of the world is my flesh. Then the altar of incense. So there are three items in the, in the tabernacle. 
in the holy place. There's the menorah and the, the bread of the presence. And then there's the altar of incense. In Revelation, we are told that we, we are told about um, heaven and about 24 elders and the, each uh, holding a harp and the golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. So the, the incense is typical of or representing the, the prayers of the saints. We are told to pray without ceasing. In other words, always be in an attitude of prayer, of dependence upon God. And then this is a parable that Jesus told them to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. There's some, some dire warnings that are issued about the incense that's used on the altar of incense. And I think that these warnings have application for our prayers. First of all, no strange incense could be used on the altar. And I think that what we can, the way we can apply that in our prayers is that we need to pray always according to the will of God. It doesn't make any sense to be praying for something that God has forbidden. Another item is no one could make incense for his own personal use and I think the way that we can apply that is is to not make our prayers selfish I don't mean by that you can't pray for yourself but I mean consider your your attitude your motivation for why you're praying and then the other thing is that no fire other than that from the bronze altar could be used the only fire that was used on the altar of incense was fire that was brought from the altar. And I I think the significant thing about that is, can a person who is not a Christian pray? Well, of course they can, but really, what's the point? (laughs) I mean, if you haven't come through the altar, in other words, if you haven't come by the sacrifice of Jesus Christ before God there's really no point in praying, is there? And then, of course, we, we can't always pray. We can't always know how to pray, but the Spirit helps us in our weakness, where we do not know what we ought to pray. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. The veil. Now, there were actually three veils or curtains. There was one at the entrance of the court. There was one at the entrance of the tabernacle. And then, of course, there is another veil separating between the holy place and the holy of holies. And, and that's the one that I really want to focus on. The Hebrew word for veil means to separate. The veil acted as a barrier between God and man. Only priests who had met the required conditions were allowed to enter the tabernacle. But something very important happened at the crucifixion of Christ. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Jesus, the true high priest, had opened the way for mankind to come into the presence of God through his atoning blood. We read about that in 
in the book of Hebrews. Finally, in the Holy of Holies, there is the Ark of the Covenant. To, to ancient Israel, this represented the very presence of God. But Jeremiah says that the Ark would not be necessary in the ultimate future of Israel. And Ezekiel does not mention the Ark in his description of the Millennial Temple. In the eternal state, there will be no need for the Ark of the Covenant because the Lord will be tabernacled in our midst. Now, let's quickly do some of this um, things that make you go, hmm. So, shortly after God had commissioned Moses and he'd given him a special appointment to go to, to Egypt to deliver Israel to confront the Pharaoh. Something rather strange happens. On the trip at an overnight campsite, it happened that the Lord visited him and sought to put him to death. So what's going on here? Why has God just given Moses these instructions about going back to Egypt and doing all of these mighty works, and then all of a sudden he wants to kill him? It says, so Zipporah, the wife of Moses, took a flint, cut off her son's foreskin, and threw it at Moses' feet. Then she said, you are a bridegroom of blood to me. So he let him alone. God let, let Moses alone. At that time, she said, you are a bridegroom of blood, referring to the circumcision. Despite her own revulsion with this rite of circumcision, Zipporah understood that the danger to her husband's life was intimately connected to the families not bearing the sign of the covenant given to Abraham for all his descendants. Circumcision on the eighth day had been neglected while Israel was in Egypt. Egyptians didn't circumcise until males were 13 years of age. So Israel had forgotten about this important covenant with God. Now, God commands that those who are to celebrate the Passover must be circumcised. God specifies that they must be circumcised before they observe the Passover. So these two accounts of circumcision and blood bracket the story of the plagues. Just as the circumcision of Moses' son and the sign of blood saved Moses from God's visit, and incidentally that word about God visited him, that's the very same word that's used when God visits the Egyptians with plagues. So in the same way that they save Moses from God's visit, so the Passover circumcision of the Israelites and the blood of the Passover lamb will be the sign, signs that lead to God sparing the firstborn of all Israel. So this circumcision and blood uh, form a bracket around the plagues before the first plague and after the last plague. God takes circumcision very seriously, both the 
original physical circumcision and also the spiritual circumcision. In Jeremiah 4, 4, it says, circumcise, circumcise yourselves to the Lord. Remove the foreskin of your hearts, men of Judah and residents of Jerusalem. Otherwise, my wrath will break out like fire and burn with no one to extinguish it because of your evil deeds. So God takes circumcision seriously then and now. The other thing I wanted to talk briefly about is the contents of the ark. What is in the ark? Well, in Hebrews 9.4, we were told that the ark of the covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna, there's one item, and Aaron's staff that budded, there's another, and the tablets of the covenant, the, the tablets containing the, the Ten Commandments. Okay, so that's, that sounds good. But then there's this scripture. When Solomon constructed the temple and he brought the ark into the temple, it says very explicitly, there was nothing in the ark except the two tablets of stone that Moses put there at Horeb, where the Lord made a covenant with the people of Israel when they came out of the land of Egypt. So is that a contradiction? No, not really. When the Ark of the Covenant was originally constructed, those three items, the pot of manna, Aaron's rod that budded, and the tablets containing the Ten Commandments, those items were placed in the Ark. But at some point between then and the time that Solomon moved the Ark into his newly constructed temple, two of the, of the three items were taken out, the pot of manna and the Aaron's rod that budded. Why? We don't know for sure. I, I've joked that uh, maybe there was an expiration date on the, on the pot of manna, you know, best of used by 1000 BC. No. <laughs> but um, I, I think maybe the real reason is, given the tendency of mankind to make idols of religious relics. That may be the reason that those items were removed from the ark. We're not told that explicitly, but we do know that in the time of King Hezekiah, they got rid of the, the bronze serpent that Moses had made because people were worshiping it. So given the tendency of people to worship uh, physical things, that, that may be the reason why those uh, two items were taken out of the ark. And so, that's the book of Exodus.